Hi, and welcome to The Sound Architect. We have the amazing Walter Merch with us. Thank you very much, Walter, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Now, before we talk about the School of Sound, uh, I'd like to ask you how you began your career in films and what led you to work with sound itself? Well, I, for reasons that are still mysterious to me, I, uh, I um, unearthed the idea of sound recording um, in the early 50s when I was around 10 years old. And uh, tape recorders had, were just then becoming uh, available commercially to ordinary people. And a, the father of a friend of mine had one for business reasons. And I, I would invite myself over to their apartment. This was in New York. And uh, to play with this amazing new technology. And uh, it, it really took off from there. Uh, I, I discovered uh, the wonderful world of music concrete sometime in the early 50s. And the idea that you could take ordinary sounds and make music out of them was intoxicating to me because that was kind of the things that I had been doing on my own as a teenager. Yeah. And then uh, I discovered that, in fact, films need sound and they need sound montage and a kind of music concrete of sound effects uh, to do what they do. And that was uh, that was really the beginning of it. So where it comes from, I, uh, I don't really know other than <laughs> my my ears stick out slightly. And when I was a kid, they stuck out even more. And also, I didn't uh, even from the earliest age, I didn't feel limited by language. So if I didn't know the word for something, I would imitate the sound of it. Right. And my friends uh, thought this was very amusing. And so they would get me to do uh, imitations of sound with my voice. And there was a cartoon character at the time called Gerald McBoing Boing, who <laughs> was similarly afflicted. He, he couldn't speak, but he could speak in sound effects. Okay. And that really, it, it really took off from there. Wow. That's quite an interesting headway into sound really then, isn't right. it? Right. <laughs> So with such an expansive career, um, do you even have a favorite project or a particular moment that you remember that is special to you? Uh, well, they're, they're all like uh, wonderful love affairs, each one of them. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest and most protracted and the most uncertain for many years was, uh, the, uh, was Apocalypse Now, which yeah, lasted, uh, you know, I was in post-production on it for two years and wow. we, de we developed what became known as now as 5.1 sound for that film that was uh, specifically designed uh, sound uh, system for that film and it was the first computerized mix uh, you know where the mixing board was controlled by a computer in film yeah. so it, it broke a lot of ground and uh, and for many years, as we were working on it, the the question was, would would we ever finish this? Uh, <laughs> because it was such a risky project, and there were so many uh, intangibles about it. But uh, so that that's the one that uh, I kind of when I think of my 
the work I've done, there's sort of pre-apocalypse and post-apocalypse. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic sound. <laughs> nice. Good way of looking right. at it. I mean, obviously, right. it's, it's known as one of your most revolutionary pieces of work with regards to editing and sound. So, I mean, it kind of leads nicely into my next question, really, of you've seen such an evolution of the software, the hardware, and the processes involved. How, how bizarre is it to look at what you work with now compared to how it all began? Well, it, um, it, it's different, of course, wildly different. And, uh, and smaller. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the human power that it takes to do what we do, there was a, a rule of thumb that we would work with when we were working in film that a minute of 35 millimeter film and sound weighed a pound. So, right. Wow. Uh, you know the 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 material that we were dealing with on Apocalypse Now. If you do the math, worked out to be something like seven and a half tons of stuff. Crikey! Wow, that's uh, a, that's a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. So everyone got. Uh, you know, we were all. Uh, you had to have muscles to do this work, and uh, but now, of course, it it doesn't weigh anything at all. And it's uh, much more flexible. However, the the beginnings of this tendency, uh, I think you can trace it back uh, certainly to the development of the transistor. Right. And as film students in the mid '60s, we were we were beginning to feel the advent of all this stuff which meant the beginnings of what now we would call prosumer sound. Right. Okay. And so when we started Zoetrope Studios, Francis Coppola, George Lucas, uh, and I, and others, uh, it was the idea that we could use prosumer equipment or professional equipment that had suddenly become affordable because of the transistor yeah. um, to do... Uh, to continue to do the kind of work that we had enjoyed as uh, film students. So it was a film studio that was trying to recreate uh, the intoxicating um, uh, experience of being a film student where everybody could do everything. You know, anything you were interested in, you, you did. Whereas in Hollywood at that time, things were still very stratified. And there were reasons for this, some of which just came down to the fact that traditionally all of that equipment was built and designed by the studios themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> so Paramount had one kind of system, uh, Warner Brothers had another kind of system, and there were all these uh, sort of archipelagos of uh, technology that were very different from studio to studio and very expensive, which was the the meaningful aspect of it. So um, <clears throat> what we see today with, uh, you know, all of the digitization and computerization of sound uh, had, its, had its beginnings uh, back 40 plus years ago with the, the advent of the transistor. So anyway, that, it's all familiar to me. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a continuation of what we did. One of the things that we uh, changed uh, at Zoetrope 
um, was the idea that the sound editor should be the person who mix the sound. Right. Whereas prior to that, and still for quite a long time after that, in traditional setups, if you were a sound editor, that was one thing. But if you were a mixer, that was a, another complete, that was somebody else. Right. Okay. And, uh, and the reasons for that had to do with how difficult the technology was. But when the technology started to get simple, er, uh, <laughs> then that barrier didn't seem to be necessary. And of course, now that, that, uh, we're every day, some new, uh, breaching of that, uh, barrier is, is happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd that there should be that barrier, but it, it's kind of as if the camera operator and the director of photography were two separate, uh, entities who may or may not communicate with each other. <laughs> wow. You know? Well, we can think about it today and how, how all those roles have blended into one. Yeah, exactly. Getting smaller exactly. and smaller. I mean, yeah. you yourself has obviously tried various different roles, including editing and sound. Do you right. prefer a specific area or do they all kind of come under one umbrella for you when working on film? Yeah, they, they come they're, they're I see them as, you know, the two sides of the same coin. But they are different. The, you To really do a good job in sound, you have to think about the film laterally, I would guess, at, at right angles to the way you think about it from uh, the picture. Yeah. Because uh, just operationally, if you boil picture editing down to its core, it's simply uh, a long string of shots, one after the other. So assembling a film uh, in, a, in a logistical point of view is really like assembling the cars of a freight train <laughs> here. Okay. Here's the, this is the car with the steel. Here's the car with the livestock. Here's the car with the coal. And you try to make the best sequence, uh, that, uh, nourishes the audience's experience in the best way. Right. Whereas yeah. sound is, um, uh, there is an aspect of sound that's like that, of course, but sound, you are dealing with simultaneity. Yeah. You know, a hundred tracks of sound, all of which are playing at the same time. So it's like the keys of a gigantic musical instrument. Yeah, it's amazing how some people don't realize the impact of sound and how necessary it, necessary it is and how much of an afterthought it still can be today. Yeah, I mean, it, it paradoxically, that's one of its strengths is that uh, it can sneak up on an audience and affect them without them re being without them realizing how or what it is that's affecting them yeah so that an audience will feel a certain way about an actor but that feeling in some ways is prompted by the sound environment in which that actor uh, is has been placed and yet they won't they'll they'll think of how they feel as coming from the actor rather than being, you know, coming from the sound environment. Yeah. Like you say, it's a double-edged sword, how people will sometimes notice something, but not realize why. Yeah. And a lot of the time it does come down to right. the audio that's affecting yeah. their emotions. So the, the audio designers and artists uh, have, have to get used to the fact that they're not going to be recognized. That's uh, just one of the, um, one of the perks, uh, shall we say, that comes along with the job. It, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's kind of a, 
if you're looking for fame, uh, don't go into this end of the business because audiences are pretty oblivious to it. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that you can work in secret like that is a big advantage. Yeah, like you say, it's a double-edged sword with the old cliche yeah. of the uh, the sound is only noticed when it's not done properly. Right. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, have you have you ever considered uh, the audio for other mediums such as video games at all, just out of interest? <clears throat> I, I haven't, uh, but it's purely because of uh, lack of opportunity. <clears throat> okay. With the School of Sound this week, tell us about your thoughts on the School of Sound and what it encompasses for audio professionals and to, and to yourself. Well, it's a, it's a unique, absolutely unique. Uh, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Um, certainly not on a regular basis. Uh, the idea that people can come together for uh, a week plus and discuss all of these various aspects of sound, not only film sound, obviously, uh, but as you said, sound in, or for video games or sound as, as pure music, the, the kind of music concrete aspects of sound or the technical aspects of it. And the fact that it's this annual clearinghouse of all kinds of uh, technical and artistic aspects to do with sound is Fantastic. I, I, you know, I've, I've known Larry Sider uh, for now like 20 plus years. Oh, and wow. uh, I, th I think I was at one of the first of the, um, of the events. But uh, I've, uh, I've uh, participated in a number of them over the years and always a number of my friends have too. So it's a, it's a, it's something that I look forward to either uh, participating in or hearing what has been discussed this year. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been to one myself before, and this is going to be my first one this week, and I'm very excited yeah. to go. Looking at the program, there's just such mm -hmm. a a vast array of speakers and and knowledge to be shared. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, your talk, can you tell us a bit about your talk's topic? I mean, the, to quote the, uh, the program, it says, uh, Walter Murch turns his sonic flashlight on the twilight zone between theatrical and documentary sound. Well, it's, a, it's an area of some contention, um, uh, meaning in a theatrical film, it is understood, well, in a, in a fiction film, it's understood that pretty much anything that you can think of uh, in terms of sound to help the story tell itself, you are allowed or even encouraged to do. Yeah. Whereas documentary sound, uh, it, it gets a little shakier because there's a certain school of sound uh, that would say, if you're making a documentary film, you must only use the sound that was recorded at the time. Yeah, And even to the extent that you should abjure any music because it just wants to be this unvarnished uh, representation of the things that happened and that the, the truth will eventually come out. I mean, Frederick Wiseman's films come to mind, but there are many people who work this way and they, they make wonderful films. Um, but, you know, where... Where do you draw the line? The, there was a, um, 
there was a, the, the Danish school of, of filmmaking that had uh, a number of years ago had this idea of, you know, the dogma film of school, uh, uh, the dogma uh, approach to right. filmmaking, which was similarly very um, spare in, and unforgiving in terms of the, the, you know, how you dealt with sound. And, you know, they followed that for a while, and then they realized how confining it was, and they began to abandon it. So it's, it's uh, looking at, uh, you know, what I hope to do is look at with some examples of different approaches and just uh, use this as a forum for discussion of the role of sound uh, in general and what its limitations are or should be, if any, and <laughs> what are the uh, what are the excesses that we sometimes go into where we shouldn't go? Yeah, I mean, it must be like you say a very interesting line to toe because you don't want to influence the watcher when it's a when it's a documentary and you're trying to just reveal the truth because, as you say, emotions and everything else are affected by the audio. Right. Um, but it must be difficult with um, certain documentaries where you may not have on-set sound for particular things or. Or right. other things. So you must still have to have things as Foley and everything else that's included. Right. Yeah, I mean, immediately you get into this, this uh, what I call this twilight zone of, you know, what do you do? Um, so, you know, I'll, uh, I, you know, I hope to show some examples of, uh, you know, there's that dictum uh, said many times. Uh, I think Picasso said it, uh, which is, art is a lie that tells the truth. And so... <clears throat> where um, the, the uh, Renoir, the filmmaker Jean Renoir, was an enemy of post-production sound. He believed that you should just use the sound that was recorded at the time. And uh, he, he believed that uh, anyone who practiced the art of dubbing uh, if they were living in the 12th century, would be burned at the stake for uh, believing in the duality of the soul. Wow. So, <laughs> that's a pretty intense way of looking at it. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that's, uh, I, I think it's a fair characterization of any of us who work in post-production sound uh, are uh, devilish pr practitioners uh, proselytizing the duality of the soul. <laughs> wow. No, no need to feel any guilt then when working. No, no. <laughs> you know, our, our place in hell has already been assigned to us. <laughs> Purely for the audio people. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're obviously very much looking forward to your talk. Are you there for the full week? Are you uh, heading to all the other talks? Yes, I, I will be. Yeah. Are you looking forward to any in particular? I, I, um, I'm going to take it as it comes. Okay, yeah, fantastic. So I just got one more question for you before we wrap sure. up. So what lies in the rest of 2015 for you? Um, I'm going to be working in London on a feature documentary uh, about uh, Operation Ajax, uh, oh, okay. which, which was the CIA uh, MI6 coup that deposed the democratically elected government in Iran and installed the dictatorship of the Shah. Wow. So, so it's uh, arguably the beginning of all of the troubles which are in the headlines today, you know, such as the negotiations with uh, Iran about nuclear weapons. So, 
Wow, so it's quite an in-depth topic to cover then. Yeah, and it, it, it'll be interesting to see how we wind up dealing with sound on that film because I, I think there is some sound recorded from the time, but probably not very much. Yeah, so you'll be towing the twilight zone, as you say. Yes, yeah. Yeah. lurking in those dark corners <laughs> yeah reserving your place in hell for the yeah. rest of the sound folk yeah. well it's been fantastic to talk to you Walter and we're very much looking forward to your talk at the School of Sound and uh, we'll, we'll catch you there alright well, I'm looking forward very much to it myself or, or listening forward to it <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely indeed ok well take care ok you too <laughs>